The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Nick Podcast. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiam. And I'm Michael Ancarato. And uh, Jack and I are the writers and creators of Cinemax's The Nick. Each week we'll be taking you behind the scenes of the latest episode of our second season. You'll hear from us and various cast and crew how the show evolved from a blank white board into the finished product that you watch at home. Today we're going to be recapping uh, episode two of season two. Uh, entitled Your No Rose. And we have the wonderful Michael Angarano with us again, who is uh, Dr. Bertram Chickering Jr. on the show. And uh, later on in the show, we will have uh, a special guest, Peter Gelfman and Michael Jordner, who were the insanely talented prop masters of the Nick. But let's start off by talking a little bit about episode two and all the fun things that happened, including the opening of the episode, which we just want to say, as we would say in the Jewish religion, Kaddish to our, our friend Inspector Spate. Uh, he ended up washed up on the shores of, uh, I think, the East River. And we also saw the return of Thackeray to the hospital. Um, we saw also Cornelia's return to the Nick for the first time, and she will be working in a charitable capacity now. She won't have that same position anymore. Uh, also, what we find out is um, that Algernon reveals to Thackeray about his eye. But what I remember when I look at that episode and I see everything that's going on and all the scenes outside, all I can think about is how damn cold it was shooting all that stuff. Yeah, we, we started this season, um, we started filming in February, and, and as opposed to season one, where we started filming in September. So we went to, uh, we went fall to winter, we started dead in the middle of winter. And the worst winter in probably 50 years. I mean, we, every day you'd hear on the news, it was another record, you know, uh, that they hadn't seen since, you know, since the Ice Age. So... It was literally. It was brutal. It was, bru- it was <laughs> brutal. Um, luckily for me, um, I watched all the skinny people shiver, and that was fun. Uh, I finally had my advantage. Everybody Google's Jack Amiel right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was extraordinary. It really was an endurance test because crews are out there all the time and they're busting their tails and they're they're doing their work. I, our crew was was extraordinary, and and what you find is that they're they're not just surviving, but they're thriving. And they're doing their jobs, and they're doing absolutely extraordinary work. There are no excuses for weather. There are no excuses for anything amongst crews. And, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that if you put a, a, a Hollywood movie crew on any problem in the world, they could probably solve it. And chief among them, Steven Soderbergh, who's operating the camera. And he's the one, you know, you, you, they're the ones who are standing outside for, you know, hours. The actors at least get to go in and have hand warmers and, you know heaters but they're the ones the crew who has to uh you know yeah. set up and and take it apart at the end of the day yeah they're they're extraordinary so one of the things we start this episode with is birdie reading the story and uh birdie reads the story in a newspaper uh it's actually a magazine but it's actually based on something real and i've been told that people really like the facts uh that sometimes that that underlie all this stuff so i wanted to sort of throw out that the story birdie is reading is about a woman who went undercover at um, an asylum and uh, told the story of what really goes on at these asylums. And we all remember that 
psychology, psychiatry was new and and psychological care was really new and the place was abusive and terrible and all that. And so one of the things that we uh, did was we sort of borrowed from the story of Nellie Bly. And Nellie Bly was a real woman originally from Pennsylvania who uh, went undercover at Blackwell Island. And actually Blackwell Island is also where um, Sister Harriet is. It was the only female prison in New York at the time. And wasn't it where... Um where did they keep... Uh, North Brother. Is, is that is Typhoid Mary? Typhoid Mary, North yeah. Um, she was on North Brother Island, which was a f- little further north. Uh, Blackwell Island is now in Roosevelt Island. So if you've ever seen that little that, that red tram that goes uh, from the east side of Manhattan to this uh, island in the middle of the East River, that's where it is today. And uh, so Nellie Bly was became a sensation because here was a woman going undercover, pretending to be a, a mentally ill patient, and and telling these tales. So we thought it would be a really great thing to sort of play with this idea of these doctors reading what was really a sensation at the time. It, it was, uh, it's a great relief when, as an actor, you have to read from something. Yeah. And when you show up on set, that is actually in the newspaper in front of you. The act- There's a full written, a fully written article that right. you... You just realized that you didn't have to memorize lines. You could have just read from the newspaper. So I was very relieved when I showed up that day. Yeah. The, uh, our prop guys have to really, you know, you know, any book you open has to look real. Any, any you know, if you look at the, at, the, at the registry at the front desk of the Nick, it's, you know, 400 pages of, of you know, what, what would be blank. But the first 150 of them are, are, look like, you know, somebody's really signed in. And so they had to sit there and do that. It's it's an extraordinary well, thing. Speaking of, why don't we talk to the guys who actually do the props on the show today? Like we said, we have Peter Gelfman and Michael Jordner, who are our incredibly talented prop masters. All the great little gadgets, all those things, all those surgical pieces that you see are created by these guys that either found them or they created them. So hello, Peter and Michael. Hi, guys. It's Peter. Hey, it's Michael. How's it going? Michael, we got you, we got you on a feed. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sitting in my hotel room in uh, Park City. Can I ask, I'm just curious what your background is, like how you guys got into becoming into props. I mean, were you art majors? I mean, because you have to have these abilities to build things. I mean, were, were you just like these model geeks? <laughs> I, I mean, how did, how did you and, guys... And little secret, the prop department is easily... Far and away, the best educated department I have ever seen. <laughs> Every single person in that department has either gone to an Ivy League school or went to one of the best prep schools in the country. It is astonishing how, I mean, you, you know, uh, there are people with master's degrees and PhDs. So tell us, how the hell you become a prop person? <laughs> it's, it's by failing at almost everything else. Really. <laughs> that it's, band didn't work it's out? It's just a really excellent underachiever kind of a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it it forces you into uh, into achieving. Uh, so, yeah, I had a sort of an art background uh, by way of an Ivy League, not an Ivy League, but a you know close to Ivy League school, and uh, I studied art history and uh, painting and things like that. And you know, you get out of college and you get a job as a PA, and uh, mm-hmm. and I sort of just gravitated towards the art department, and that was. 30 years ago now, so, or maybe more, I think. And, uh, you know, I think Michael has a similar story. 
Yeah, you sort of, when you start working on a film set, you kind of figure out which area you feel like you're the most comfortable in and feel like you right. can do the, you know, do your best work. And uh, I sort of fell into props. I used to be, I actually used to be an assistant director for a short period of time, but I didn't really love that. And then I uh, mm -hmm. worked, did, did some props on a film and another film. Before you know it, you end up uh, doing the Nick. It's one of those jobs where you, you're not, you're not really sure when you start, like, what it is that you have to do. And things just get flung at you. And you <laughs> you either do them or you find a different job. Yeah. So, so, you know, you learn on the job. Every day is a learning experience. And, you know, you pick up a lot over the years. And I'd like to say that we both had medical training, but uh, <laughs> we, we've only ever played hands of doctors on TV. But every time I see you guys, like Gelfman's either got like, well, I'm also a, I'm also a gunsmith, and then you know, and then you have an acetylene torch, like, and then I turn around and Jortner's like jerry rigging like five things, and suddenly you know you you've invented a new instrument. Do you guys? I mean. In your daily lives, I mean, is it the cobbler's children don't have shoes? I mean, your daily lives is just everything broken in your houses? <laughs> My wife is just still complaining about the dishwasher that I attempted to install a week ago. It's still <laughs> leaking on the floor. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. like to collect anything. I've, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing in my home that that is an antique or anything like that at all. Only at work. You just have a futon. That's all you have. <laughs> exactly. <in your> house. <laughs> you work with a lot of different departments, so you never know when you're going to hand something off to special uh, to, to effects or to set deck or to makeup. So, is there a standard of where your duties begin and other people's end? Because we were t talking about the eyeball with Algernon in, in episode two. So maybe you can walk us through how that all worked. Well, we had the needles and we had the uh, clamp or the... the speculum, uh, right? Yeah. The specula. The specula yeah, that the... we had to, you know, we, we had, luckily we had, I think we had two of that specula because they're very difficult to find and it would have been very difficult to manufacture another one. But we were able to, we had to pass one over to visual effects that we cut down so that they can have just the pieces that they needed to attach to the eye to his to the, the eye so that they can I thought to to tape to to tape, tape to, to his, his face, face right guess, in, to, in the hell, to, in the open position to Andre's face and then we so that was one aspect of it and then we had to make a lightweight one that would stay onto his face because the other one would have just fallen off if it was not attached to anything right and then we had the needle that we had to have sort of a safe version that can get close to his eye and then we had to cut the syringes to do the fake injecting in and out so we sort of had the pieces that were required and we sort of handed them over and worked with special visual effects and special effects to uh get all the shots that were needed is it numbing it's begun to you need to make a two to three millimeter incision on the upper portion of the sclera once you've made the incision, twist the blade, which will release the subretinal fluid. Surgical knife. That device that we're talking about is basically the same thing that was in, uh, Clock in Clockwork Orange, Orange right. yes. where, right. where, they, where they hold his eyes open while he has to watch the movie. Right. And, uh, we just didn't have Beethoven's Ninth playing mm. behind Algernon. <laughs> right. But apparently during, during the filming of, of Clockwork Orange, they, they basically injured Malcolm McDowell to such an extent that he had to take a few days off 
Um, so they really did it to him. Yeah, yeah. they actually put those on him. Wow. So we were uh, we were not going to do that to, uh, to Andre. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, it was pretty early in the uh, shooting. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bad wanna... idea. I mean, by episode nine or ten, he can down. lose an eye, but really, yeah. <laughs> episode two, we'd rather not. So, so yeah, it all had to be combined with uh, with VFX, and we had special effects involved too. They they made some sort of rubber sections of the of the tool, or or even cast a whole rubber piece, and uh, and we passed it along to to the uh, special effects makeup department, who applied it to both, I guess, to Andre's face and to a dummy head of Andre's head that they had built. Um, so, you know, yeah, it was a, a big cross-departmental yes. piece of work. Yeah, we, we do. Wow. We, it seems that we sort of have a hand in work with a lot of different departments, which is really good because sort of uh, f- adds to the collaborative spirit. We, we definitely, there are definitely things that we sort of can do to a certain point, and then it's always great to know that there's someone else, you know, whether it's Justin or um, Mark Barrow that can take it and sort of, do some more engineering to, to help, you know, create what we really need. And we're so, huge control freaks, so yes. we really like it. <laughs> Yeah, well, when you hand it off. But uh, Justin is Justin Raleigh, who's our, our VFX supervisor in terms of, uh, you know, on set with the prosthetics and all that. And Mark Barrow is, you know, the guy who gives us everything from steam to fire. And he's pretty incredible. Um, and he pumps the blood. Yes, he does pump the blood, doesn't he? Um, oh, yes. So uh, the fever cabinet shows up in the episode, too. Is that real? Is that fake? Did you copy it? That's a giant prop. Um, well, we have to uh, tip our hat to, to Howard Cummings, our production designer, oh, yes. on that one. We did a lot of research, and they did a lot of the art department as, in general did a lot of research. And then they basically drew something up. And I think Mark Barrow actually fabricated most of that, the, uh, the metal frame for it oh, wow. and so on. Um, yeah, I think we added some pieces to it. Uh, thermometer. <laughs> was our big contribution to that. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you decide how do you decide that that's going to be something that the art department does or that Mark Barrow does as opposed to you guys? Like how do you guys sit down and go, "Okay, we'll do this one, you'll do that one. This falls more in our wheelhouse?" It's more about size. <laughs> yeah. Usually we like to think of props as things that you can actually pick up. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work all the time, but uh but we get away with it, you know. So like if if there's a chair in a scene for for instance, you know, we'll say, well, that's set dressing because you know, even though the actor interacts with it, it's furniture in the room. Um and the fever cabinet sort of fell into that category because it's sort of built into the room. Although that doesn't work all the time. No. <laughs> A lot of the time we get stuck building things like that. Does anybody, is, are there ever moments where you show up on set and, and you turn to the production designer and say, I thought you were doing that? And they say, I thought you were doing that. Usually we have enough meetings in advance. <laughs> right. that, yes, uh... try to avoid that. Although, you know, there are times when you show up and you sort of still have to... Uh... Scavenge. Yeah, scavenge yeah. for new, you know, scavenge for things from other sets, or go into the warehouse and see what you can dig out when uh, something happens to be not exactly what it was expected to be. Do you guys like it when it's when it's you know just a typical job where you go, look, I I have to have a I have to have a computer here, I have to have a this, I have that, or do you really, you know, or do you like it when it's a world you have to create or recreate? I definitely prefer the latter. Uh, you know, I feel like when you're on a job where the props become very 
common and normal things is when you sort of fall into the category where whatever you have, someone always wants it to be slightly different. Like, I wish this was blue. Oh, can it be an inch bigger? Can it be an inch wider? But when you deal with the world of recreating history, you sort of get a little more latitude because you're, you know, coming at it with the, with the research and sort of also you're presenting them with something that they're a little surprised that you actually pulled off. <laughs> That's yeah. very true. <laughs> it's a big advantage. Yes. <laughs> if they don't really know what the real thing is, it's a it's a huge advantage. Yeah, right. Though. As an actor, yeah. you, you're you're just shocked when you come up to, when you when you when you show up and you have you know. I I remember this season. I came I came into the uh, prop room and I was like, I want a I want a different watch chain. And do you remember, Michael? That was like a that was a very that was a, like a large talk that we had to have. We had to oh, get yes. Ellen Mirajnik involved. Like oh, the yes. size of the watch chain <laughs> and what kind of watch fob I was going to use. And it, it became this whole conversation. Well, you couldn't yes. work. I mean, I remember you yeah, went I, back I to your dressing room. You wouldn't come out because it was just not the right one. Michael Jortner and I got in a screaming match. You with slapped each other. me. I slapped him. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite things, when, when, you, when you give people the tour, when I would give people the tour of the set, when people would come to visit me on set, it's you, you take them through... You know, you take them through the theater, you take them to the ward, and people are usually really impressed. But they're really impressed when you take them into the prop room, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a a huge warehouse-sized room of just, you know, thousands upon thousands of... It's a museum. Yeah, it it really (laughs) is. Every kind of hemostat and, and scissor and suture and, you know, all of these cool things. I mean, there were so many moments when we were doing these surgeries, particularly... That, you know, the surgeries kind of by nature were slightly, you know, improvisational in, in what we had to use. And what, you know, we would realize halfway through surgery, like in rehearsal, Dr. Burns would go, oh, no, you can't use a hemostat like that. You need a much larger hemostat. <laughs> and so that is what he sounds like. And so you have to turn to Michael and go, you know, I need a larger hemostat. And he'd be like <laughs> to his walkie talkie. Yeah, I need a large hemostat, please. You know, you you just ask for something, and they they and would just give appears. it to you, and it just appears. I mean, I remember one time we were sitting there, and um, Soderbergh just looked at. I think he looked at Jortner and said, "Hey, um, uh, we need something for um, uh, Gallinger's wife to do." And and Jortner literally was like, "What should be doing this? Should be doing this? Should be doing this? Should be doing this?" And 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 so Stoderberg said, um, oh "Yeah, how about uh, knitting needles?" And literally, I don't know how, but like two seconds later, Jortner had like nine different period knitting needles, and I was just like, "How? Where does this come from?" Like, you know, you're like Felix the cat, like you just keep pulling things out of your bag. Like, like do you guys live in like mortal fear of not having everything? <laughs> We like to anticipate, and so so we definitely spend a fair amount of time whenever we go shopping for some things that we really need. When we went to like a like a you know a fair like Brimfield, or we go to a vendor or an antique place in, in Massachusetts, we always just sort of get everything that we possibly think could be used in the period in houses on the street, and we sort of just sort of started amassing a collection of things that, strangely enough, everything that we bought ended up getting used in one way or another. 
Yeah, we really did use just about everything that we got. Even things that I bought that I would get made fun of for buying or vice versa (laughs) would end up getting used. Like what? What's something that you would get made fun of for buying? Let's talk about the tiny axe for a moment. So (laughs) for the axes that uh, Ping Wu used at the end of season one, we were sort of looking online for, you know, antique Chinese weapons. And I saw these axes that were, you know, looked amazing and... I was like, we've got to buy these. And so I ordered them. And there had been an ongoing thing between Peter and I with the Chinese weapons. And every time we would buy something, <laughs> the other person would be like, what the hell is that? We can't use that. And then these axes came, and they were literally maybe six inches tall. Perf- I think they were bottle openers. I think they were meant to be bottle openers. <laughs> but we, uh. we took them, and we had them made larger, and we used them in the scene. <laughs> We did. See, but we did. They look great when they were made full full scale, and we had uh, Ping Wu <laughs> flinging them at uh, at somebody's at head. At Bunky Collier. Bunky Collier. Yeah, Bunky. But I do. <laughs> I, I do think the tiny axe does follow me around from place to place, and it's always <laughs> on my desk, whatever office. I'm you in. should. You should just. You should just wear it on your belt. I should wear the tiny axe. We asked you guys this year for Henry's car, uh, that that little runabout he's got, and we asked you for. Um, an electric ambulance uh, for Cleary. How did how did you guys even? I, where do you even start with that? Well, <laughs> can't give away too many trade secrets, but uh, <laughs> but we had to travel to um, to Montreal to a place outside of Montreal to have those built. But the designs were sort of a uh, collaboration between the guy that built them and our research into what these vehicles were actually like. So you you essentially built them from scratch. They were built basically yes, more than essentially they were built from scratch from you know just sheet metal and uh, golf cart motors. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of the guy who we found does a lot builds a lot of horse drawn carriages and he sort of was able to take that knowledge and and quickly and efficiently build these uh, motorized vehicles. I mean there was a lot of phone calls, a lot of back and forth. You know, with the designs, but he was definitely he knew what he needed to do from the start, from the get go. He was a French Canadian and didn't speak much English, and oh, uh, we, being American New Yorkers, don't speak any other languages. So, <laughs> um, so there was we had to have translators and such. It was uh, it was amazing that they actually didn't come back like inside out or something. But yeah, uh, I thought season two, the vehicles were 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 a big high point for me. Now, well, especially when they broke down when we were oh, outside, because yes. we were talking earlier about the cold and how it, it ended up actually being I thought, a great moment when it didn't work outside the, the, the jail. But I'm sure you guys were a bit frustrated. Yes, about that was that. that was a little bit of a low point for me. <laughs> but no, that, was that not written in the script when it? No, re, that see that's very funny. I had no idea. You know, you read you read the scripts, but you know, I had no recollection that it hadn't. I think we originally had it scripted that he can't he can't start it, but it had nothing to do with the cold. But we originally thought it was going to crank in the in the front, but that's not how they work. Yeah, it was electric, so there was right, no engine right. to turn over. So, that was, so, right. so we, yeah. we cut it out, and then it then it actually happened. See, but that's such a funny <laughs> yes. moment when he goes into <laughs> hail a ca- carriage. Full steam ahead. Cold. Wants to kill the battery. Not to worry. I'll hear you a carriage. Yeah. 
Now, in season one, was there something super cool? Like, sometimes what happens is you guys come to set with, like, five different versions of something. And sometimes Soderbergh will just point it and go, I, I like that one. Or you'll come to me and, uh, or Michael uh, Begler and say, hey, which way do you think they would do it? We did it. Was there anything that, that, that you guys prepped that you were dying to use that you guys just, you know, no one ever picked that one? Or you just, <laughs> we just never had a reason to use it? What about the cat electrification device? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yeah, to, to give background, um, we had a scene originally in season one where after Nurse Monk gets electrocuted, they sort of have like human resources takes them beside basically the version of that and says, and brings in a guy who says, look, you just have to know how not to get electrocuted. And to show you the dangers of electrocution, he was going to electrocute a cat. And we actually showed it. And, um, and then I think because Soderbergh really likes cats, I, I think that oh, never yeah. made the light of day. I don't know. <laughs> and we had to use the rabbit the second time we were going to massacre yes. some poor <laughs> unsuspecting oh, right. forest land creature. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, one of my favorite prop moments, and uh, just I think it was probably one of my favorite moments of season one, was the Edison recorder. Can you guys tell us about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we we had... Bl- I love how amused you are by by, well, by bringing these props back up. I feel like it's just like hitting, like striking such a chord of like, oh my God, that was one of the more difficult things I've ever done in my life. I thought it was... And I'll tell you about it. I thought it was, I thought it was re, 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 re-meeting an old friend. Right. It was one of those things where luck. You, you tested it and you knew that it worked. But you never really are sure if it's going to work when you really needed to, <laughs> or who was going to really record we, we had those, when you really needed to. But, but we you had got those little wax someplace, wax right? discs. Yeah. yeah, the wax cylinders. Basically, we we bought we rented we bought one or two that we found at a at a dealer, but then they weren't working well. And then we got one from a guy that we rented. He was like from a Edison Museum, I think, or a friend of someone at Edison yeah. Museum. And we bought... Somewhere in the Midwest, yeah. like desperately far away, that he had to pack it up with, you know, old old dish rags and send it to us. And, <laughs> uh-huh. and he had wax um, cylinders that were never recorded on, you know, that he had had from that period. So they wow. conceivably were would have worked, and we the needles were changed, so conceivably it would have worked, and we had tested it. But it just so happened that when we were at the, uh, you know, the, the the home with the big party scene and the, the captain Robertson Mansion, Robertson yeah. Mansion with the big party scene and the captain, we set it up, and all of a sudden, you know, Granger starts speaking, and they play it back, and there it is. <laughs> Everybody who was, I, I, we had no we had no idea it was going to work. I, I, but it really was the most extraordinary moment well, of, the, of well, the shoot. Yeah, it was like I mean, people have iPhones in their pockets that can do a thousand, a million things, and yet the recording of this voice, people were erupted in cheers because it was like, oh yeah. my god, that's brilliant. So yeah, the spontaneous. I mean, it was, it was definitely that, very yeah. spontaneous. It, I mean, and it, that's uh, real, and it shows up on yeah, yeah, it shows up on the on the on the show. It's it's really you know a great moment. You're right. Captain, if you will, when I point to you, please speak into the horn. With pleasure, Mr. Edison. (laughs) This is Captain August Robertson. Uh, I I am happy to demonstrate this machine. How fortunate we are to, to be living in these times. 
you know go on to another job what happens to all the props we thought that uh we were going to warehouse the props in our prop room uh this season uh, and wait for next season and come back and you know unlock our prop room uh but then about a month and a half ago we got a call saying oh we want to actually rent out the uh stage to to another company so can you just come and pack it up and uh, we'll, wow. we'll move it across the street? Yeah, get a couple of buddies with a pickup truck. So, uh, yeah, we did that. We did that. We uh, we spent a couple of weeks packing it all into into crates and cases and moving it about 150 yards across the street into a different storage room. Um, but it was kind of fun because we got to look at every single thing that we had again. And, did, uh, did you take anything and home? pick it up. I was and, just going to say, are there, you know, even from other jobs, I guess, but the Nick specifically, has, has, have you guys, you know, pocketed anything thinking like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is actually something, this is my memento from this. Never. I, because because no. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, I think everybody stole cocaine vials from set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was on set the last day, and I was sitting in Barrow's office, and I opened the drawer, and there was his check to uh, to Luff, and I'm just, I just took that and I took it home and right. I framed it. Yeah, excellent. Nice. Yeah, I took one of the ambulances I, and a horse. <laughs> I knew it was missing. I've got a nice education today. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really, it's you know. I, I think we we've educated along with the audience yeah, today. more more than you wanted to. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I now bet that a lot you know of people, it, you can you can forget about it. I bet a lot of people said today. I decided I wanted to be a prop master. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that that there, is what we aspire to. Are there awards? <laughs> like, do you guys have award? Like, is there any category? Like. Is there like, I mean, there's no Emmy category for prop. There is, isn't there one award that is presented from by Hamilton Watch? <laughs> there is. There's Prop Master of the Year from Hamilton Watch. And whatever prop, whatever prop man gets enough Hamilton Watch like close-ups, in, <laughs> ends up getting it. Well, Peter Gelfman, Michael Jordaner, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for the second episode of the Nick Podcast. Today's podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Next week, we're excited to have Eve Houston, the Knicks' own nurse Lucy Elkins, and Chris Sullivan, who plays Tom Cleary on the show, to explore behind the scenes of episode three, entitled The Best with the Best to Get the Best. So check it out next Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern on Cinemax before listening. I'm Michael Begler. I'm Jack Amiel. I'm Michael Angarano. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>